Welcome back to the program. The American rate of juvenile incarceration is seven times that of Great Britain and 18 times that of France. It costs us an average of $88,000 a year to keep young people locked up far more than we spend on a kid's education. To examine that system requires a twofold understanding, however. One, a criminal justice system that sends so many young people into these facilities. And secondly, the nature of the facilities themselves and the public policy decisions that have allowed them to deteriorate to the point where it is almost certain that young people sent to these facilities will have a dramatically greater chance of adult incarceration. So how bad is the problem, and can it be solved with the tools we have today? And frankly, in spite of what we say, do we care enough to do anything about it? My guest, Nell Bernstein, has spent years up close and personal looking at the system. She tells the story of that system in her new book, Burning Down the House, The End of Juvenile Prison. Nell Bernstein's previous book, All Alone in the World, was a Newsweek Book of the Week. She's a former Soros Justice Media Fellow and winner of the White House Champion of Change Award. It is my pleasure to welcome Nell Bernstein back to this program to talk about Burning Down the House. Nell, thanks so much for joining us. I'm very glad to be back. It's great to have you here. It does seem that this is a twofold problem. One is a, a criminal justice system that, that seems to be focused on certain kinds of kids that wind up in these facilities, and the second part, the facilities themselves and the state of them. Talk a little bit about that first. Well, I thought that was an interesting way to put it. And as as you were speaking, I was thinking, is it a two-part problem or is it really just two sides of the same coin? Um, when you talk about a, a system that's focused on certain kinds of kids, I mean, what we're really talking about is a system that is about four and a half, five times more likely to lock up a black teenager for the same offense under the same conditions as a white teacher teenager. And then when you talk about the conditions, there's a tremendous amount of abuse, both physical and sexual, inside these places. And then just dehumanizing daily treatment. And I I spent a lot a lot of time thinking about why we were able to treat kids so badly. And I really think it's because we don't see the kids we incarcerate as fully human. We don't see them as our kids. Talk about that in terms, not in terms of us, but in terms of public policy, in terms of district attorneys and judges and those that are sending these kids to these facilities. You know, I, I use us in the broad sense, meaning the public, our society. And I really didn't meet evil guards or malicious judges. I I don't think it really is something that operates at the individual level. We have a lot of laws that, that limit their options. Uh, we have an attitude that I think is shared by a lot of the public that, you know, you need to get what you deserve rather than what you need which actually runs counter to the purpose of the juvenile justice system. And I remember hearing one warden say quite a while ago, you know, we govern by their we govern by their consent, meaning we're all sort of implicated in what's going on. So I don't think it's a matter of evil individuals out there doing this to kids. What do you think 
that it is in terms of the public policy that has allowed this to happen? Is it just a blind spot, or has this happened over time like the proverbial frog in the, in the boiling water? Well, that's a question I've really struggled with. Um, it It's not something that's crept up on us. It's something that has actually, when, I'm, when I say it, I'm talking about the quite serious abuses that go on behind bars in, in these facilities. They've been taking place since the 1800s when we first built houses of refuge. Uh, so before we even had a juvenile justice system, the first juvenile institution had reports of abuse and kids were you know, basically rented out to work. So I think it's intrinsic to the institution. In other words, if you if you create a tremendous power differential between the keepers and the kept, and then you place them far from the public eye, it seems just about inevitable that these conditions are going to develop. And I say that only because they always have. To what extent is it our attitude about punishment versus rehabilitation? Well, you know, it's funny because unlike the adult system, the juvenile system is specifically supposed by mandate, by law, to be rehabilitative. That's its function. Uh, But what the research shows, as I think you mentioned, is that a kid who goes into a locked facility within that system is about twice as likely to go on to become an adult prisoner as a young person who simil- who commits a similar a similar offense, and when you combine that with with research showing that in confidential interviews, eighty to ninety percent of all American teens admit to having done something that could get them locked up. It's just you know some get tracked that way and some don't. I, I think that we barely. No, no, we we do still pay lip service to the idea of rehabilitation. And I think perhaps a lot of us believe that that is what's taking place inside these locked facilities, but the evidence points in exactly the opposite direction. But at least we still have the idea that that we should be rehabilitating kids. And I think that gives us something to kind of grab onto when we try to do something about this. You point out in in a situation in New York where, in fact, judges were unaware that there wasn't even that rehabilitation component or the mental health component within these facilities. Yeah, I mean, I remember uh, Senator Durbin held hearings on solitary confinement, which is a huge problem in juvenile facilities. And he asked his fellow legislators, just to spend a day, not locked up, but just to visit the prisons that they are sending people to with the laws that they write. And I think the same should be asked of judges. Just just know where you're sending kids, because prison is not an abstraction. It's a very concrete reality for those who go there. But, But I think that's pretty widespread, that the public and also a lot of those involved in the system really don't know 
what's happening to the kids once they send them away. And that's one of the functions of sending them away. There's also an interesting disconnect in this. You talk about Senator Durbin's hearings. The very fact that we have repeatedly had hearings and investigations on state levels and on the federal level at Congress about this over and over again should say something in and of itself that it seems to fail to say. Yeah, we we do like our committees and our blue ribbon <laughs> commissions, but those also have been along just about around just about as long as the institutions. I mean, the most egregious example of that I came across was a place called Dozier in Florida, where uh, grown men were reporting that as boys they had been beaten there so badly that the little outbuilding where they were taken for these beatings had bits of flesh and lip on the wall. And, you know, these these reports came out over and over again, and there was an outcry and a scandal and a, a newspaper series and an investigation, but when I looked into it a little more deeply, it turned out that this institution had been through at least a dozen such in investigations. And the first one dated back to 1908. And there was always this cycle of scandal, outcry, promises of reform, and then a backsliding to the status quo. And and that's been true in many places. As you look around between state facilities, local facilities, county facilities, talk about the disparities and the differences you see in those facilities. Well, that is a really important distinction in the context of my book because I, I should make clear that my book really focuses on the large prison-like state-level facilities uh, rather than the county juvenile halls. It, in, the way to understand the difference is that a, a county juvenile hall is like a county jail. You know, you might not stay there long. You can't get sentenced there for more than a year usually. You might be held pretrial. And then these larger state-run facilities are the equivalent of a state prison and more serious, supposedly, offenders get sent there for periods of years. But I was really looking at at the large prison-like facilities. Mm -hmm. I've been inside a lot of juvenile halls, and often they're very similar. It just happens not to be the focus of my attention because the system is so vast and sort of many-armed that I don't think I could have taken it all on in one book. Are there good facilities out there? Are there some best practices anywhere that, that we can learn from? Yes. Uh, but in a way, those are two different questions. There are absolutely better facilities. The clearest example of that is Missouri, which eliminated all of these large prisons. It's surrounded by razor wire and with bars and all the trappings and replaced them with much smaller facilities. I don't think they get much bigger than 35 kids, maybe 40. Retrained their staff in an ethos of true rehabilitation. 
connection relationship involved the families and you know they get visitors from all over the nation trying to replicate their model it's a good practice i but even in missouri they're now starting to realize that not all of the kids in these facilities need to be there because the most most kids that we lock up anywhere are not murderers or carjackers they're runaways or shoplifters maybe a marijuana charge so a lot of kids are in these facilities in Missouri and elsewhere on very low level charges so in Missouri they're starting to move those kids into the community and that's happening elsewhere too there's been a 40% drop in the number of institutionalized kids over a decade and the real best practices which I'm glad to talk about more take place in the community and where has there been success in those best practices what's worked well as i said missouri has uh, very good outcomes as a state but the practices that have the best result they're, they're known as evidence-based practices because they've been studied very extensively um there there are three of them and they're very similar multi-systemic therapy functional family therapy etc in two of the cases a young person remains in his home and in the third he's in a in a therapeutic foster home but with the intention of of getting him back home and in each case there's a caseworker with a very small caseload sometimes available around the clock not only to the young person but also to his family and i think that's really key to the success of these programs because when you lock a kid up you airlift him out of his family out of his community put him through a traumatic experience and one that you know so in in california kids refer to the facilities as gladiator schools schools for crime and then you send him back to the same family and the same community without having done anything to alleviate the problems that might have led him into delinquency to begin with. And and these evidence-based programs avoid that error by considering the whole family. Talk about the racial component in all of this. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's I don't think it's a component. I think it's a key driver uh, of the whole system. I originally assumed I would have a chapter on race in the book but it turned out that whatever word you want to use racial disparities is the the most common although i think one of the weaker they permeate every aspect of the juvenile of the juvenile justice system so that you know if you look at the numbers at at the point of entry into the system a black teen is about four and a half times more likely to be incarcerated for the same crime as a white teenager. But even before you get to that point, you know, there aren't police kind of cruising around my neighborhood. They're not going to stop and frisk my son if he's out on the corner with his friends. So that's a huge difference. And these disparities get worse and worse the deeper you go into the system so that they're greatest in terms of 
who gets tried as an adult and who doesn't. So they sort of escalate and end up not just creating you know, an unfairness for individual kids, but having a really powerful impact on entire communities. The only way to understand it really is to go into a youth prison in a state like Oregon, which is a very white state, because if you've been into a number of them, you do a kind of double take. You're just not used to seeing a white prison. It's that extreme. To what extent is there any kind of acknowledgement anywhere in the system to the science and the research that's been ongoing into the adolescent brain and how that impacts what's going on in these facilities? You know, in essence, what that research shows is that the frontal cortex of the brain, which is the part that governs things like connecting an action and an effect, impulsivity, judgment, all things that we understand are partially lacking in teenagers and all things that can lead to to breaking the law. The frontal cortex isn't even physically fully developed until the mid-20s. And actually that research is beginning to make its way into jurisprudence. There have been a couple of Supreme Court decisions recently uh, for example, declaring it unconstitutional to have a mandatory life sentence for a crime committed as a juvenile that explicitly do reference this brain science. And essentially what the justices are saying is this science tells us that who you are at 14 is not who you're going to be at 40. And we can't mandate that the 40-year-old pay for the crime of the 14-year-old. Of the you were talking about the guards in these facilities and the various people that work in them. If they're not the villains of this story, who are the villains? Well, now you've asked the question that keeps me up at night, which is, how can we do this to kids? Those are, those are the words of a young man, but they stayed with me. Uh, obviously, there's a problem with some guards when a third of kids talk about physical abuse or excessive use of force, when one in ten young people are sexually assaulted by a guard as opposed to about one in 50 by another ward. So obviously there there is a problem at the individual level. But, you know, the most famous example of how this happens is the Stanford prison experiment where they divided a group of college students into guards and prisoners and just sort of let them loose. And they had to actually stop the experiment after a few days because the guards became so abusive towards the prisoners. And those words are in quotes in this case. So I think there's something about giving people that amount of power over others. And when you add to that the power differential between adults and children, you, you just have a really toxic situation. So who's responsible? I, I think we all are. You know, I think as with anything that's legislated, 
the society is responsible for it. And I know that's kind of an abstract answer, but I think at the very least, it's our responsibility not to look away, not to say this couldn't be my kid, not to say this isn't my problem. Because with 80 to 90% of kids breaking the law, it, it could be any of our problem. Given that, and if we were to really take a serious look at this as a society, as a public policy debate, can the system at this point, given the culture, given all the things we've been talking about, can it be changed? Can it be altered? I don't think that the institution of the juvenile prison can be reformed to the point where it's humane or acceptable to send kids there. No. But that institution is only one part of the larger system. And I do think that there's been really a sea change in public attitudes towards young people who break the law, reflected in you know, decades of public opinion polling, in political attitudes. A 40% drop is significant. So I think that there is the potential to move from an institution-based system to one that relies on the interventions that work. You asked me where are they used. What I should have said is they're used everywhere, but only with a few kids. So what, what we need to do is stop doing what works with a few kids and what we know doesn't work with the rest of them and, and just kind of reverse that equation. So I don't think that the juvenile prison can be reformed, but I do believe that the juvenile justice system can. Nell Bernstein, the book is Burning Down the House, The End of Juvenile Prison. Nell, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 